So Esther 3 and 4, we're looking at, and I titled it, Esther Takes a Risk. Let's look at this quote from David Eisenhower, uh, president, former president of the United States. It tells us here, if you want total security, go to prison. There you're fed, clothed, given medical care, and so on. The only thing lacking is freedom. What do you want? Security or you want freedom? To move from security to freedom requires something of you. It requires your willingness to take a risk. Exposing yourself to loss or potential harm for you and a loved one. But to move from this security orientation, this fascination, this thirst, this addiction to security, it demands risk. Truth of the matter, though, it's really not a question for you to ponder because you really don't have a choice. You will have to let go of your fascination with security and be willing to risk for the sake of freedom for the sake of life, because security is only a mirage. It's really only an illusion. Helen Keller, who was blind since uh, 19 months, look at this quote that I think sums it up. Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than the outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Kind of like the gospel. You know, Christ, either you're for me or you're against me. Some of us, uh, you know, we kind of want a little bit of both. We want security and freedom. Somewhere in the middle. We cultivate a sense of security, but it's just a mirage or illusion. If you're going to live life, you got to take a risk. It reminded me of this picture of a little child by the edge of the swimming pool. Hopefully you can see it. His face is kind of darkened, but there he is. We've all probably been there when we were first introduced to swimming, and we felt very insecure and it's out of that insecurity that we cling tenaciously, gripping the side wall, afraid to let go. If all he does is hold on to the edge of the pool, it may create a sense of security, but the edge of the pool imprisons him. He's not going to be able to live life in the swimming pool by experiencing the diving board, the slide, snorkeling on a coral reef or the other things that letting go will allow him to enjoy. We cultivate a sense of security. It's important to us. But as I mentioned, it really is a mirage. It's only illusion. We can create a sense of it, but it breaks down. There's no better example than jumping into a car. Jumping into a car and driving somewhere. Every time you jump into a car, even with airbags, seatbelts, blindside, lane change detection, 
handphones-free navigational assistance and reinforced steel framing, you're still running a risk. You're still running a risk. You can reduce it, but you can't eliminate it. You can reduce it, like trying to decide whether you're going to ride with my wife Connie or with me. <laughs> By that choice, you can reduce it, but let me guarantee you, you're not going to eliminate it. It's kind of like my financial advisor. He asked me, what is your risk tolerance? He doesn't ask me if I want to take risk. He asked me, what is my risk tolerance? Is it high, moderate, or low? I tell him neither. None of the above. I'm not going to take a risk. I'm going to put my money under my mattress. He promptly tells me, oh, Ed, that's the first place the burglar will look. So I said, okay, I'm going to put it in my sock drawer. He says, that's the second place the burglar will look. Well, then, where can I put it so that it's secure? He says, no place. They will turn your house upside down until they find it. You can reduce your risk. You can diminish it, but you can't eliminate it. Security is a mirage. That's what we're going to discover this morning. The, the desire for security is not bad. Don't get me wrong. It's not bad. I think it's natural for us to desire security. But I like the phrase, and I use it often because I think it sums up so many choices we have in life, and that is good is the enemy of great. The desire and the way we try to uh, gather things that will make us secure is good, but it can get in the way of something great. What is greater than security? And I would say, and from our text, I want to uh, uh, demonstrate that for you. It's the providence of God. The providence of God trumps your thirst and desire for security. That's where we need to head. That's where we need to be headed as followers of Christ. We have to be willing to take risk for God because of our belief in the providence of God. And when I say providence of God, God is in control. God is in control. He has a plan. And he's executing that plan. And nothing will thwart God's plan. In today's passage in Esther 3 and 4, Mordecai and Esther, they're going to go from chapter 2, playing it safe. If you remember and you're following us, we're studying the book of Esther. We've gone through 1 and 2. Mordecai told Esther, don't let people know that you're Jewish. Conceal your identity. Play it safe. Don't take a risk. So they go from concealing their identity 
to what we're going to see she concludes in the end of chapter 4 today. She makes this incredible declaration. If I perish, I perish. Well, how in the world does she go from one extreme to the other? May that inform me how I choose to live life. Now, I decided this morning, as I prepared, I want to do something a little different. And I just want to read the story. It's really a great story. I'm going to just sit down here at the table to signal uh, change. And I'm going to become, I, I said, I want to read it like a bedtime story. Now, my, my concern is that you will fall asleep. <laughs> Either that or you may think I'm saying it's not true. I'm not saying that at all. But often when we come to God's word, the way we approach God's word, the way we read it, does determine to some degree what we receive. We can re always come at it as an analytical book, a, a book of theology and, and history, and try to put on our scientific hat without reading it as a personal story. This has such fascination. That's why I want to approach it this way. That's why I asked them to include in your bulletin the chapters. Chapters 3 and 4. So if you need to follow along with your eyes, you can do that and hopefully not fall asleep. A true biographical story, but yet has ramifications, I believe, for us today to ponder, to consider how does it apply to my life. But first, let's look at the key characters. The key characters. The first one is Mordecai. And I want to rehearse this in case you haven't been with us and we did take a week break. Mordecai is the older cousin of Esther older. Esther's mom and dad died. Mordecai is raising Esther following the death of her parents. Esther, because of her beauty and that she delighted the king, she was made queen. Now both Mordecai and Esther are Jewish. Keep in mind, God has made a promise to the Jews. What we're seeing here, God is going to work out his promise. Nothing's going to thwart it. And Mordecai and Esther are part of this juncture in the Jewish history here. King Hazarus is the king of Persia. And Haman, we will see, rises to the surface at the beginning of chapter 3. He is an employee of King Hazarus. He was promoted above all of the other officials, very powerful, very influential. You could say he's second in command. Now, because I am a pastor still, I'm going to read the story, but I, I will make comments, okay? I'll make comments, so let's uh, uh, look there. If you want to follow along, Esther, Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Hazarus promoted Haman. After these things, after what things? Mordecai became aware of a plot to assassinate King Hazarus. He had inside information. What we read is uh, Mordecai sat at the king's gate. What that means, it's not he was a beggar there. No, at the king's gate, often court, legal matters were be settled. Also, a lot of commerce, so you're very influential. You're highly regarded people 
would be sitting and spending time at the king's gate. And while Mordecai's there, amongst this pool of people, the higher-ups, there was this plot to kill King Hazarus. That's what it means by after these things. King Hazarus promoted Haman. After Mordecai told Esther about the plot, Esther told King Hazarus, and the two who were plotting the death of the king were killed. This crisis for King Hazarus was taken care of because Mordecai revealed it to Esther, who informed the king. But then after this, King Hazarus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, these influential people, these important people, even they bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, we don't know why Mordecai did not uh, bow down. It was not necessarily because of his Jewish uh, monotheistic belief in one God and that he would be compromising uh, because there were a lot of signs that they were not living out of a strong Jewish faith, concealing certainly their identity. A lot of people conjecture Mordecai, there was a lot of this interplay, political interplay, and it was an issue of pride is why Mordecai refused. He had something against Haman. And so he refuses uh, to bow. Verse 3, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So even Mordecai, we read here that Mordecai may have revealed to some of those close cohorts there at the, the gate that he was Jewish. He may have not have revealed that. It could be that some of these cohorts that eventually telling the king, Hazarus, that Mordecai's Jew, they may have been privy that he was, but because of the comradeship they had there at the city gate, they just didn't say anything to King Hazarus. So in other words, Mordecai is still under this veil of secrecy about his Jewish identity. Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Okay, so probably right now, um, the, Haman does not know he's Jewish. Haman is just upset and angry in fury because Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. So as they may know, because then we read there, so as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, when these cohorts with Mordecai at the king's gate finally reveals to King Hazarus that Mordecai is a Jew, 
Haman then sought to destroy all the Jews. At first, his fury was just towards Mordecai. Now that he knows Mordecai is a Jew, to all of them, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hazarus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hazarus, they cast purr, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So in other words, Haman did not execute his plan right away. They were a very suspicious group, the Persians. And so the superstition reigned. And so they go through all these rituals and process. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Hazarus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. King, if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. The king is trusting Haman. No questions asked. Verse 11, and the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governor's over all the provinces and to the officials of all the people, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. So this was far and wide, just not regional. It would have gone throughout Palestine. This would have been the attempt for total eradication, elimination of the Jewish population. A complete genocide is at work. It was written in the name of King Hazarus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, the capital. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This edict was so overwhelming, especially because there was more quietness in the land up to this point until Haman reaches this uh, position of power, a prestige. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, 
Mordecai tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Verse 3. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decrees reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, told her about Mordecai, that the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth. But Mordecai would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was going on. Why is it? Why it was? Verse 6, Hadatha went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go back to Mordecai. This is what I want you to say to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman comes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is what, but one law. To be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live, or she may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Well, you see here, Esther is saying, well, you know, Mordecai, I would, but there's this law. If I go... I will be killed. I can't. Sometimes we may want to argue with God as to why we can't take a risk for his purposes. We're not talking about foolish risks. We're talking about risk for God's purposes. Verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. 
You know, Esther, you feel like it's safe. You feel like it's secure here in the king's palace. Being in the king's palace creates this kind of edge of the pool, uh, an illusion. You know, it feels kind of secure. But, hey, Esther, it's just an illusion. Don't think you're any safer than all the other Jews. For Esther, verse 14, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. So, see, this is the providence of God. Esther is being invited to it. You know, Mordecai is telling her, God's plan is going to work itself out. You're invited to be a partner. You're invited to the adventure, to participate in it. What's your choice? And then he offers these words. And who knows? I think he's saying it rhetorically to her. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Was it chance? Luck? Happenstance? Or is the providence of God is real? He has a plan. It's not going to be thwarted. And Esther, you are a significant part to that. You are in the palace for a specific reason. Then verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then we hear this, a a new woman. Uh, We talk about growing in Christ is a process. We certainly see this with Mordecai and Esther. Because look at this next declaration of, of Esther, and you go, where does that come from? Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. Though it is against the law. And she says here, and if I perish, I perish. See, her understanding the providence of God, that God is in control, is more significant, is more powerful than this thirst, this appetite for security. And I don't know about you, I think it's a major component of our Christian life, living in the 20th century in our culture. We surround ourselves with security and all sorts of security devices. And so this is an ongoing um, uh, battle as to what degree do I believe in the providence of God. This is the point where I I would say where we can really rehearse what I call gospel fluency. I mean, within small groups to contemplate, okay, if the providence of God is true, if God is really in control, why am I so afraid of this risk? God, what is really going on? If you're in control, And I have a sense that you are inviting me to take a step of faith or take a risk for your purposes. Again, we're not talking about foolish things that we take risk about. God, just free the the tenacious uh, grasp on my thirst for security. Release it a little bit to where I will enter a little bit more willingly to risk that you have prepared for me. 
in this time. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Uh, we got world changers here, Mordecai and Esther. See, when, when you take a risk, the problem with risk, when you take it, you don't have guaranteed outcomes. You want to know what the results are going to be. It's not risk then. What makes it risky is not knowing. What you do know is the providence of God. And can you rest there? Providence of God. Uh, I think we all can probably look at our lives and say, yeah, I, I kind of think God's directing me, and we look at life circumstances. Look at these from, um, you know, was God preparing Esther for such a time as this? Look at all the things that had to come together. Vashti stands her ground and is demoted. She was the queen before Esther. She wouldn't go in and delight the king and provide him sexual favor, so she was demoted Esther wins the uh, queen contest and is elevated because she delighted the king. You know, the other thing to notice about that, you know, some people will point at Esther and that was not all good. That was not all up and up or righteous, sexual righteousness. Sometimes people rise into positions, they have positions. For whatever reason they get there, you can still ask yourself, as you mature in Christ, Okay, I am where I am because of uh, sordid and maybe bad reasons. But God, now that I'm here, am I here for a purpose of yours that you have ordained for me? Uh, Esther is promoted the king. Mordecai serves at the king's gate. Despite being Jew, he rises in terms of his stature and prestige within the Persian culture. And he's given this to where he can hear about the plot to assassinate king. And he reveals it. He reveals it to Esther, and Esther is mindful to tell the king, hey, this I only know about because of Mordecai. Uh, they cast lots. Um, Haman, they didn't go right out and execute. They cast lots, providing almost a year before the execution of the plan to annihilate the Jews. So there was a lot of preparation that could be done uh, to safeguard that from happening. Certainly news reaching back to Hazarus. Um, and then the last one, uh, it's coming up. It's coming up yet. But you go, okay, see, I'm at, are all these coincidences? Are all these coincidences? Or is this God's plan at work? The king can't sleep. And so he reads the book of memorable deeds and chronicles. And what does he read? He reads about how Mordecai, while he's sitting at the city gate, he became aware of the assassination. He told Esther who told the king, so the king was spared. So the king goes, did we do anything for Mordecai? I, I can't remember. Uh, you know, he saved my life. What, what did we do for Mordecai? That's coming up. The rest of the story is coming up. A lot of questions in Esther, but one thing that is certainly clear is about the providence of God. God has a plan, and he's executing his plan. Uh, the verse uh, Esther 4.14 just resonates, uh, uh, probably the focal point of this whole book. Um, Esther 4.14, um, can we get that up there, my friend? 
Okay. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, Esther. Certainly Esther has. She's in a position to save the Jews. Now, what about you? Do you ever have that sense? You know, is that a New Testament understanding that, you know, God has created you for a purpose that's ordained for such a time as this? And what kind of risk might be attached? What, what keeps you maybe uh, held back from stepping forward and at least take a step towards that what sometimes we use the word calling or purpose that God has given you. Certainly, um, it's true of the es Esther in the Old Testament, but I think we see it as well in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. Let's listen to these verses. You know, sometimes we receive Jesus Christ and we're so focused on salvation, being rescued for hell, and that's what we think this whole thing is about. Well, it, it's much bigger. It's much bigger than in just, uh, th this is a rescue story for eternity's purposes. So Ephesians 2. Um, what verses did I say? 8 and 10, 8 through 10. For grace... For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not the verses I want. That's not the verses. It tells us that we have been called to good works. For the building up of the body of Christ. That we might be mature and attain the full measure. So we have been ordained for a purpose. We are all called to be ministers. Scripture is clear. That means to serve. Esther was given this incredible assignment, this grand and glorious assignment. And so we certainly glamorize it and raise it, uh, you know, to such a, a pedestal. Yours may not get that kind of notoriety. But still, Scripture is clear. If you have received Jesus Christ... You are part of his providential plan to carry out this rescue story, and your faithfulness is huge. And so you can take risk to move in that direction. Even though you may stumble, you may forget a scripture reference, even though you may get confused, you can take a risk believing that God is at work. There's, um, when we get to, to the providence of God, I, I think I just want to seize this one, one moment because typically when we talk about the providence of God, that God has a plan for you, uh, we typically get into these discussions, well, then do I have a choice? Then do I have a choice? We can get into endless discussions about that. I see in Esther both. 
God's plan will not be thwarted, but God is using Mordecai to tell Esther, go to the king and do this. Are you willing to take a risk? Are you willing to um, wage spiritual warfare towards your addiction to security to where you will fulfill uh, God's calling and take a risk? God's plan is not going to be thwarted. Are you going to participate in it? Somehow these two merge together, don't they? Both are true, and I like it at the picture of the railroad tracks. Uh, do we get that picture up here? You know, when we look down at our feet, we go, two rails. They seem to be conflicted. They seem to, you know, how can I have free will and yet God has a plan? It nullifies my choice. And we will go off into countless discussions and, and and, and I think sometimes we go into those because, really, I don't want to take a risk. I'd rather just argue about whether I have a free will or, or God is dictating. So we look down at our feet and we get confused. And let, let's just stay here and argue. But then when you look down the road, way down the road, somehow the two merge into one. And I liken it, it may be a bad example since I said security is a mirage, but I think the reason for this example is from our present circumstances where we live today in this human body uh, on this physical earth, we, we are uh, baffled how these two merge. But someday, someday we'll think, ah, oh, that's how God invites me to take the risk, to go to the king, to play my part, to let go of security, the edge of the pool, to go on the adventure of life. And at the same time, he's in control and directing at the same time. So, let's pray. Uh, the rest of the story next week, the rest of the story. Father, we do. Sometimes it's good to stop uh, and not quite try to answer some of the um, ponderings of Scripture because it shows that you are much greater. We just have to stand amazed that our vocabulary and our brains, the way they work, sometimes can't rustle everything to the ground and satisfy us. And I think it's just so that we make sure we're placing our trust in God Almighty, the person. So, God, help each one of us here. We all want to feel secure, and that's good. That's important. But, God, bring to the surface of our minds those areas where that security is getting in the way of taking a risk that you have, whether it's in our family, here at the church, at work. God, that increasingly, increasingly, not perfectly like Esther, but increasingly, we might be able to say, okay, if I perish, I perish. If I'm laughed at, I'm laughed at. If I'm made fun of, I'm made fun of. If I appear ignorant, 
or stupid. That's okay. Because you are in control. Amen.